Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, January 31st, 2014. I gotta admit, I am very excited about the good sermon we're going to be playing in hour number two. (laughs) Unfortunately for you... It's going to be a long road to get there. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, and open up our Bibles and compare what people believe, teach, and confess to what God's Word says in context to see if what they're believing, if what they're being told, if what's being said actually squares with what God's Word really actually itself says. Oftentimes, no interpretation is necessary, just a little bit of context. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is going to have a title, something to the effect of um, sober on sound doctrine or drunk on deceit, something like that. See, that's kind of the idea here. And um, the, the only way I can prepare you for the program is this, is that the sermon that you're going to be listening to in hour number two is just brilliantly fantastic. And it asks the question, you know, are we ready for Christ's return? Are you, are you ready uh, for when Jesus comes back. And um, in this uh, in the sermon that we're going to be hearing, uh, it's, it's going to exegete the parable of the two slaves and the parable of the talents. So uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 51, and uh, chapter 25, 14 through 30. And uh, if, you, if you really want to do, you know, dig deeper into what's going on in the sermon, and I'll, I'll talk about it when we get into hour number two, but I don't want to interrupt it, is that um, it's Daniel Needs, who's uh, the, the gentleman uh, preaching the sermon uh, from the Isle of Man um, off the coast of uh, Great Britain. And what he's doing here in this sermon, one of the things that makes it stellar is that he is doing what in hermeneutical terms is called biblical matrixing. And you're thinking, but, but what? what? 
Yeah, I remember seeing the movie The Matrix. Yeah, no, it's not that. The idea here is is that he's using clear passages to govern everything. And so what he does is that he's using all of sound doctrine in the scriptures and you know pulling from other areas of scripture and plugging them into the parable to give us a good right understanding of what these parables are about and he just does a fantastic job of distinguishing law and gospel sin and grace and this is just a great great sermon and uh, and so i'm really looking forward to that but as you listen to the sermon you know when i listened to it the first time as you listen to the sermon, the thing that really struck me about the sermon is it's it's at an, at an even cadence. There's nothing over the top exuberant about it. It's just sober, engaging, good preaching. I mean, you 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 know you you don't see this guy jumping off the rafters or you know hanging from the chandelier and swinging and stuff like no, nothing like that. It's it's just sober, sound doctrine. Sober, absolutely, just brilliantly sober, and it's it's as refreshing as a deep running river of clean water it's it, it's just one of those things you know you, you, as you're in the sermon as you're listening to it and taking it in i mean it's it's just so well done and so biblical and it's just so matter of fact so unapologetic i mean it's just again it's sober it's sober minded it's soberly delivered it's and it deals with a very what a topic that can be scary for some and yet the comfort of the cross and the gospel and christ and him crucified for our sins is is just peppered throughout the sermon it's just brilliant so uh, you know but in order to get there we must First, go through what I will call drunken deceit. It's just the best way to put it. If you were to compare the um, the difference between sound doctrine and deceit and false doctrine, I, I think a good way to compare them is the difference between being sober or being drunk, being wise as opposed to being utterly foolish. Uh, these are the, I think these are good ways of doing it. And so uh, th- th- that's why I'm I'm going to name this uh, episode, you know, uh, sober-minded sound doctrine or uh, drunken deceit, something to that effect. Because that's the contrast that uh, as you're listening to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, y- keep these categories in your mind, and I think you'll see what we're talking about. Now, let's uh, let's talk about. What we are going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, we will be beginning today with a 30 goal of the Apocalypse um, Co-Prophet of the End Times update. And um, if, if you've been following the news, um, and it, what's funny is, is that as soon as this hit the news wire, there were people who were sending me links to the story. Um, this, this past weekend, uh, apparently, it, it, you know, at the, at the Vatican, uh, Pope Francis released, you know, some peace doves. And those doves were attacked by a crow and a seagull. And as silly and funny as the story was, everybody knew. I mean, there was a whole bunch of people. As soon as they saw the story, they knew that William Tapley would be weighing in on it. And that's what we're going to be covering. We're going to be covering William Tapley's weighing in on this, uh, this, these doves being attacked by a, a seagull and a crow. Now, here's the problem, though. Um, is that um, as I was listening to this, it became painfully clear that um, William Tapley is actually deceived on a level that is extremely dangerous. 
and he's guilty of doing something that the scriptures actually forbid. And I'll explain it when the time comes. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, and then we will switch gears and we have a, a, a Patricia King gang update. They have a, a new guy who's um, <laughs> who's broadcasting at the XP Media website. And we're going to be getting a what he calls a prophetic nugget, an extravagant prophetic nugget. So I can't even begin to tell you what that's all about. We'll take our break after that or before that. It just depends on how the time runs. And then what we'll do is we'll play you a little bit of audio from, again, another commercial, a YouTube commercial for the upcoming 2014 International Pastors and Leadership Conference put on by... T.D. Jakes, and we will be listening to Dr. Cynthia James. Um, Just a snippet from Dr. Cynthia James as she is highlighted as somebody that people need to come and hear, and and, uh, and Christian leaders need to sit under her teaching. And as we listen to the example of this woman's incredible... teaching, um, we will again have another example of what I would consider drunken deceit. And then uh, to end off hour number one, we are going to finally get to that uh, relevant magazine article, Five Really Bad Reasons to Leave Your Church. And I'll be uh, kind of doing point counterpoint with this thing. And then, like I said, hour number two, fantastic sermon. And this is the, you know, in order to properly experience this episode of Fighting for the Faith, you must go through the whole process. Hour one and hour two, and when you compare what I'm talking about, sober-minded, sound doctrine versus drunken deceit, you'll you'll begin begin to experience, if you would, the difference between truth versus error in a way that, you know, again, you know, points to the fact that um, false doctrine and deceit has a way of uh, causing spiritual intoxication uh, and in so doing is actually hurting people. So we will uh, go ahead and dive into the program proper. And since we are doing a William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times update, that requires us to do this. Doom and gloom coming soon. Listen to Third Eagle's tune. Doom and gloom. God is telling us the end is coming soon, very soon. You'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon. Doom and gloom, very soon. Rapture comes at night or noon. Doom and gloom, very soon. If you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. Yeah, I... Yeah, that... (laughs) Self-written song there by William Tapley. Of course, he's got just mad Casio skills there. Now, what we're going to be listening to is uh, his latest video entitled Evil Bird Attacks Pope's Peace Doves. Evil Bird Attacks Posts a uh, Pope's Peace Doves. You know, say that ten times fast. And see if you can spot the major, major problem. It's not a minor problem. This is actually, this kind of gets to the heart of what is the besetting sin, if you would, of William Tapley. And I say that sober-mindedly because this is actually a very dangerous sin. Here's William Tapley, Evil Birds Attack Pope's Peace Doves. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse, and the co-prophet of the end times. A lot of my subscribers 
have been asking me about the prophetic significance of those two doves which were released by Pope Francis at the Vatican over the weekend, but which were immediately attacked by a seagull and a large crow. Does this simply mean that peace is about to be taken from the earth? And there's no doubt that is part of the prophecy. However, Okay, now, he calls that a prophecy, but here's the problem, all right? If you have your Bible, um, you can go to Deuteronomy. Hang on, let me uh, pull this up here myself. Here, Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to be taking a look at verses 10 through 13. Okay, 10 through 13. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortune or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Now, so what we find here in the book of Deuteronomy is that God has revealed that the practices of divination, fortune-telling, and the interpretation of omens is, uh, along with sorcery and being a medium or a necromancer, is an abomination to God. And that's exactly what William Tapley is doing. He is one who is an interpreter of omens. Now, it's difficult to kind of catch that that's what's going on here if you're not familiar with the category um, or if you overlook the fact that of what he's really doing and, and just take it at face value. He thinks he's giving you prophetic significance regarding things that he's finding in the newspaper, stories, and you know stuff like that. But in this particular case, it became very clear to me that uh, William Tapley's besetting sin and the, and the thing that it causes him to be so deceived is that he is basically just an interpreter of omens. And, you know, he takes a look at what's going on out there. And omens, you know, you know, you know this, this particular practice of uh, looking at omens actually oftentimes involved birds, you know, ancient, in the ancient world. And it became very clear, that, oh, my goodness, this is exactly what William Tapley does. He is an interpreter of omens. This isn't him giving us any prophetic significance into something. This is him doing something that is actually considered an abomination before the Lord. And so this is what his besetting sin is. This is why he's so deceived, because he hasn't connected the dots to see that what he's doing is actually sinful, and he needs to repent. He needs to stop looking for signs in, in the newspaper and you know and the actions of birds and, and sporting events and things like that and finding prophetic significance in them. He's basically somebody who is self-deceived and doesn't understand that what he's doing falls under a biblical prohibition, the pro- prohibition of interpreting omens. Let's continue. However, I believe there is also a deeper significance. And if this prophecy is from the Holy Spirit, we will find that there are three attributes. First of all, there will be numerology involved. Second of all, the symbolism will take precedence over any literal interpretation. And thirdly, you will need a co-prophet to explain the prophecy. And it's very possible that on YouTube this 
prophecy has already been explained. I have never said I was the only co-prophet of the end times. But, as you know, the gospel story was told by four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it won't hurt if I explain this prophecy for you once again. First, let's look at the numerology involved. There were four birds. And, of course, four is the most important number in end times Bible prophecy. And there are many, many examples, but I will just give you one. And that would be the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I believe these four birds symbolize the four most important individuals of the end times. And that would be the two prophets, Enoch and Elijah. That's who the two white doves would symbolize. And the two evil individuals of the end times, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now the seagull would indicate the Antichrist because the Antichrist is the beast from the sea in the book of Revelation. And the dark colored crow would symbolize the false prophet who is the beast from the earth. Now regarding the symbolism of this event, in scripture the two witnesses, Enoch and Elijah, are killed by the beast from the abyss, that is the one world government. However, the two most important individuals of the beast from the abyss are the false prophet and the Antichrist. So, the symbolism here would hold true. The two white doves, symbolizing Enoch and Elijah, were attacked by the two birds of prey, the seagull, which symbolized the Antichrist, and the black large crow, which symbolized the false prophet. Oh, man. Again, <clears throat> kind of going with the, the, the drunken, you know, the, the inebriating effects of, um, of false teaching. I mean, this is just utter and complete nonsense. How can anybody believe any of this stuff? And what he's doing is interpreting an omen and finding prophetic significance in it and a message that he wants to share with the world. This is, you know, it's, it's sad. It's absolutely tragic. I mean, and what, what is it that he has given up in order to, you know, go down this, in, you know, inebriating a false doctrinal trail? The answer is sound, sober, true, sound doctrine. Okay, um, and again, you're going to get a great example of just good, sober, sound doctrine in uh, in the sermon that we're going to be uh, listening to today. But this is just utter nonsense. I mean, it's as if he's had his brain melted, and you know what's left over is just some kind of a incoherent goo in his brain. Now, some people on YouTube are saying that Pope Francis was responsible for this incident, but a lot of that is just anti-Catholic bigotry, which is all over the Internet. Yes, I admit, you could say Pope Francis put these two innocent doves, symbolizing Enoch and Elijah, in harm's way. But on the other hand, you could say that the prophecy from the Holy Spirit came through Pope Francis. And there are several Holy Spirit trinities involved in this event. For example... The doves were actually released by two children on each side of the Pope. And that is a two plus one trinity, which is a Holy Spirit trinity. 
Also, there were three white figures, the two white doves and the Pope in white. Another two plus one Holy Spirit Trinity. So you could say, yes, the Pope symbolizes the false prophet, or you could say the Pope symbolized a last good Pope, and that would be Petrus Romanus. So... Uh. Uh, I, I, I got to hope that uh, whatever it is that ails his brain, it, that you don't get it through casual contact on the Internet. Oh, I, I can't go on. But again, this is just nonsense. It's utter and complete nonsense. And at the root of this, he's actually doing something the Scripture forbids, and that's the interpreting of omens. And he's doing it under the guise and the false idea that uh, he's somehow, you know, some special uh, co-prophet sent by God to interpret these signs when nothing could be further from the truth. Moving along. So it, it's been a while since we've premiered a new person uh, broadcasting at the xpmedia.com website. Here's another example of how false doctrine inebriates and um, uh, destroys the mental faculties of um, the person imbibing on, in it. Uh, we'll be listening to um, a, uh, a recent video posted at the XP Media website from a new broadcaster there, and this is the extravagant prophetic nugget. The extra, the extravagant prophetic nugget. I don't even want to try to explain it. Uh, just listen in. Here we go. Kevin Basconi here, your host at the Numa Network. Yeah, that's Kevin Basconi at the Numa Network. Excited to be bringing you this Numa Nugget, the first one for 2014, from right here in the heart of Moravian Falls, North Carolina, at the new international <laughs> Moravian Falls. North Carolina, clearly the epicenter of uh, extravagant prophetic Numa nuggets. The equipping center. We've just finished a wonderful season of pressing into God with prayer and fasting for about the last 90 days. And the Lord has been speaking to me and giving me promises for his people for this year. And yeah, really, the Lord's been speaking to you and giving you promises for this year. Uh-huh. And if you believe that, I have a bridge I'd like to sell you. It uh, connects uh, you know, Manhattan and, and Brooklyn, the borough of Brooklyn. It's beautiful, beautiful bridge. I can give it to you for a very inexpensive price. The Lord spoke to me on the first day of the Jewish New Year on Yom Kippur and gave me some wonderful promises. And in this Numa Nugget, I want to share those with you because I believe this year, 2014, can be a year of extravagant praise, double peace, and double peace. Wow. Supernatural prosperity. And supernatural prosperity. Wow. 2014, you got this from a Numa Nugget. Wow. I've been waiting upon the Lord. He's been giving me some wonderful promises found in his scripture. What? Really? He has? Okay. Read those to you. And I want to encourage you to praise God this year, no matter what your circumstances look like, no matter if you're sick, no matter if you're healthy, no matter if you're struggling with your finances or you're prospering in great and mighty ways. 
praise God in all of these things. I believe that praise, extravagant praise, is going to be the key to release supernatural grace into your life. To step. So extravagant praise is going to be the key to releasing all of this stuff. Uh-huh. And you got this from a Numa Nugget. Got it another level of glory in this year amen so let me yeah no i can't say amen to anything you've said because nothing you've said even sounds remotely coherent to you from psalm 148 praise the lord praise the lord from the heavens praise him in the heights praise him all his angels praise him all his hosts praise him sun and moon praise him all you stars of light praise him you heavens of heaven let them praise the name of the lord for he commanded and they were created psalm 148 verse 6 let me finish with this yeah go ahead i mean i mean you're reading more more scripture than the average seeker driven pastor ever does in like two weeks worth of sermons uh, i mean i can't fault that he also established them forever and ever and I just believe that as I've waited upon the Lord, He's showing me that this year is a year of extravagant praise. I- yeah, that psalm has nothing to do with uh, 2014 being a year of extravagant praise. How'd you get that out of that psalm? I believe our heavenly family found in Ephesians chapter 3 is praising God. In fact, we know that they're always praising God around the throne. But there is something special happening in the spiritual realm this year. Really? There's something special happening in the spiritual realm this year? Uh Uh-huh. How'd you figure this out? Host of heaven, God's family, and us here upon the earth feel an urgency because the return of Christ is near at hand. And we are praising the Lord. And I want to encourage you to make 2014 a year of extravagant praise. Not just any old praise. You gotta make it, you know, you gotta make 2014 a year of extravagant praise so that you can get that double peace and and uh, supernatural prosperity coming your way. You release extravagant praise in this realm, in the temporal realm, in the earthly realm. Your extravagant page praise is going to release something in the super- Yeah, it's going to release something, all right, like a virus. ...realms of heaven, and God will release a grace and favor upon your life to begin to prosper and be in health. In fact, that's another aspect of this year. I believe that 2014 can be a year of double peace and supernatural prosperity. We... Yeah, uh, again, another example of what I would call the inebriating effects of false doctrine, the inebriating effects of false doctrine. This poor guy, I mean, you know what, you know, when a horse, you know, is has been hamstrung, it's no longer capable of walking, you know, um, something has happened here, the, kind of the spiritual equivalent of a hamstringing has occurred to this poor gentleman. Boy, uh, yeah, ah, n- none of what he says makes any sense what does this have to do with sound doctrine doctrine biblical christianity uh the, you know the concepts of rightly understanding law and gospel sin and grace repentance and the forgiveness of sins and rightly understanding what christ has done for us uh you know the, you know in being born of the virgin mary suffering under pontius pilate being crucified died buried raised you know raised again on the third day this has nothing to do with sound doctrine it's just complete and utter nonsense but boy he's really excited about it just i mean there was you can't fault him for a lack of zeal 
It's just that his zeal has no sound, sober knowledge to go along with it with what the Bible actually says. He reads this wonderful psalm and then turns around and says that we have to have extravagant praise in order to release a Numa nugget of, uh, of double portion peace and supernatural prosperity. Man, talk about spiritual blindness. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, um, we've got another T.D. Jakes, uh, you know, uh, money-grubbing televangelist update, and then we'll get to that Relevant Magazine article. Uh, So stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you could be casual at work. And they's always having that 25-cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing and have made some not-so-nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, But Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. 
Hi, Chris Roseboro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, false doctrine has a uh, inebriating uh, ability to make you incapable of coherent theological and doctrinal thinking. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And it's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. My name in the Hall of Fame Just want a big fat pile of money Give me that almighty dollar For that lettuce every holler Give me buckets full of ducats Let me walk around and waller in Mazuma El Dinero, wanna be a millionaire Give me money, 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 money That's right, I'm gonna go ahead and that's enough of that. You get the point. That's our uh, that's our money grubbing televangelist update music. And what we have here is audio from another commercial for the upcoming TD Jakes, um, you know, put on uh, 2014 International Pastors and Leadership Conference, featuring one of their speakers, Dr. Cynthia James. And to which I say, what on earth is she talking about? But I'll play the whole commercial so you can kind of get the feel for what it is that they're promoting here, but see if you can make any sense of Dr. Cynthia James's teaching. Here we go. I'm just so excited, so charged up, so motivated, feel so much more anointed, ready to go back home and start tackling and implementing my vision. You feel anointed and you're going to tackle and implement your vision. Um... Where in the Bible does it teach Christians to do that? Nominal and such a key area for churches that normally don't even consider how important it is to have a strategy and a plan for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's more than just Jacob rising up at night. Okay, this is Dr. Cynthia James talking about Jacob. See if you can make heads or tails of this. But it begins to prefigure and talk back to us. 
Because remember, we are living our life from Genesis to Revelation, but our spirit is living from Revelation to Genesis. And so the scripture begins to say, yes. What? It was night and he could not see, but he was about to ascend from his low, conniving, base, cheating, trickery self. Although it was night, he was about to rise up out of his fear and his self-doubt and all of his inadequacies and his incompetencies and having stolen his brother's birthright. He was about to rise up out of his self-defeating behavior to new levels. He was about to rise to a place of meeting his destiny. Uh-huh. Rise to a place of meeting his destiny. Uh-huh. He was about to pass over and embrace what was the dawning of his future. Embrace the dawning of his future. Mm-hmm. He was about to rise with two wives uh, and two women servants, uh, two natures, uh, two minds, uh, two personalities, uh, a duality. Uh, uh, w- uh, what? All of that junk that was his uh, at night when other people could not see, uh, when they could not speculate and criticize, uh, when the church could not judge. Uh, he was going to take all of that. What on earth is this woman talking about? Mixed multitude in his mind and in his heart and say, I'm going to rise anyhow. And I'm going to take my dual self, myself that wants to succeed, but simultaneously self-sabotages. And I'm going to cross over the Jabaka, the Jabaka, the The what? Uh, The Jabaka. Uh Uh-huh. Oh boy. Jabbok means uh, an outpouring. Uh, Jacob is going to pour out. Uh, and the angel of the Lord is going to wrestle with him uh, and is going to pour out. Uh, and there's a pouring out on earth uh, and a pouring out from above. Uh, and so he is changing his nature uh, and he is limping in his side. Uh, and so. <laughs> what on earth is this? This is a litany of absurdity. Jacob becomes my Jabbok, and my Jabbok becomes my Jacob. And Jesus has poured out and emptied out himself so that I can succeed. Uh huh. So Jesus has poured out uh, uh, himself uh, so that you can succeed. Uh huh. I have life in Christ. Jesus has taken me over. Yeah, she's really into this. I mean, again, lots of zeal, ton of zeal. She's very enthusiastic. But you know, when it comes to actually lucid doctrine here and in, in, you know, not to so much. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh? Taking me through the transitions, uh, giving me a way to go over. Uh, and I celebrate him at the dawn of the day. Uh, huh, yeah. Woo. That was so deep. It was unfathomable. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that was horrifyingly bad by the way uh i won't play the Stephen furtick update music but we did um put in a new exhibit in the museum of idolatry today that i think is at least worth mentioning here on today's episode of fighting for the faith since we're talking about the intoxicating effects of of um false doctrine um, somebody sent me a link to a document that I grabbed off of the Elevation Church website. 
Uh, reasons Elevation Church is the best place to work. The reasons why Elevation Church is the best place to work. You can find this, by the way, at a littleleven.com. A littleleven.com. I am the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. I have a love-hate relationship with this particular website project of mine that I've been running for many years now. Um, and it, it's, it's the things in there depress me so bad that I, I walk away from it for a while and then I come back and and you know give it another college try and then it disgusts me so much i end up walking away from it for a while so if you notice that this that the museum of idolatry kind of has fits and starts and things like that and then disappears for a while it's because of the fact that this this actual website depresses me but uh, the the january 30 31st 2014 exhibit is called why elevation church is the best place to work and this it's basically a a document put out by the good folks at Elevation Church and there's 30 reasons why it's the best place to work but let me read some of these reasons for you and see if you can spot the problem number 1 again this is number 1 we serve a lead pastor who seeks and hears from God mhm let me read to you number 3 we serve a lead pastor we can trust Number seven, we serve a lead pastor who pours uh, pours into us spiritually and professionally. And number 16, we serve a lead pastor who goes first. Um, hmm. And by the way, in the 30 reasons given there, Jesus wasn't even mentioned in the footnotes. Oh, but the lead pastor was. Who's the lead pastor of Elevation Church? That would be Stephen Furtick. So you could say, we serve Stephen Furtick, who seeks and hears from God. We serve Stephen Furtick, we can trust. Uh, We, (laughs) yeah, man, we serve Stephen Furtick, who pours into us spiritually and professionally, and we serve Stephen Furtick, who goes first. Yeah, so, um, yeah, if you uh, attend Elevation Church, you might want to leave quickly. It looks like they're about ready to start pouring the Kool-Aid. Um, yeah, just just something that uh, you might want to pay attention to because um, pastors actually serve people. People don't serve pastors. See the difference? Yeah, pastors are meant to serve, not be served. They are not to rule and reign. They are to serve. That's what they exist to do. And people do not go to church to serve the pastor. There's something 180 degrees off here. And like I said, Jesus wasn't even mentioned in the footnotes. And so, uh, you know, the good folks at Elevation Church, yeah, they got a big, big problem because apparently their Messiah is Stephen Furtick, not Jesus Christ. The one whom they serve is Stephen Furtick, not Jesus Christ. And if he were a true pastor, uh, then he would be serving them, not the other way around. And in that same vein, from Relevant Magazine, the headline reads, Five Really Bad Reasons to Leave Your Church. Five Really Bad Reasons to Leave Your Church by Aaron Loy. And this particular piece, I'm dubbing purpose-driven propaganda. Boy, I've heard these things so many times. I mean, I've already, in fact, I already wrote against this article months and years before it was ever written because this is nothing but purpose-driven propaganda. And so here's kind of the root of the problem, okay? Relevant Magazine seeks to, well, you know, make Christianity relevant to the broader culture. So they are connected at the hip. They are kind of a propaganda um, a magazine designed to go hand in glove with the purpose-driven, seeker-driven church model. And as a result of that, 
um, you know, they've got to find ways of shoring up the criticism that the uh, that particular model receives. And the reason it receives it is because, well, it's not a biblical model to the guys who are the leaders of these uh, so-called churches. They don't actually preach the word with any depth or whatever. They always strip mine the Bible looking for relevant tips and tricks that you can apply to your life to, so that you can experience life transformation, uh, which, by the way, is not the same thing as biblical sanctification. Just want to make that, you know, make that clear. Uh, but uh, from time to time, they get criticized by people who attend these churches, and they say things like, you know, I feel like I'm not being fed. Uh, this church is getting too big, uh, and you know I don't agree with everything that the, is being preached, and my needs aren't being met, and things like that. I won't read all five of the uh, the um, the reason bad reasons that they give for uh, leaving the church, but again, this is a piece of purpose driven propaganda. This is not sound biblical doctrine. This has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches regarding the 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 um the the duties of the office of pastor the biblical duties of the office of pastor okay in fact uh, the reason why this is written is because seeker driven leaders do not fulfill the biblical duties of the office of the pastor and they get complaints along this line a lot so Aaron Loy writes, let's be honest. While there are some good reasons for leaving a church, there are a lot more bad ones. Mm -hmm. Okay. As a pastor, I hear some of them every now and then as people walk out the door. As a church planter, I hear them constantly as people walk in the door. If you're thinking about looking for a new church home, please don't use one of these five reasons to make the jump. Number one. I'm not being fed. Okay, now here's what Pastor Aaron Loy responds to on this complaint. Do pastors have a responsibility to steward the scriptures and care for their church spiritually? Well, yeah, you bet they do. But it can be all too easy to overlook this while trying to manage staff, build systems, meet needs, put out fires, and develop leaders, all while overseeing the overall vision and direction of the church. So let's be honest. If you, if you own a smartphone, a personal computer, or a library card, you have access to some of the best preaching and teaching in the world. And you can even find some teaching archives of some of the greatest preachers of all times. Christian, you have access to more meat than any other generation before you. So to leave a church because you're not getting enough is a cop-out. Your primary call in the church is to contribute, not just to consume. And as a Christian, you shouldn't require spoon-feeding for the rest of your life. Eventually, you need to learn how to feed yourself so that in time, you can actually feed others. Remember, your call is not just to be a disciple, but to make disciples. So there, yeah, um, here's the problem. Okay, notice here that uh, the seeker-driven vision-casting leader completely gets a, um, a pass. Okay, because you know, they're busy. They're busy. They're managing staff, building systems uh, that meet needs. They're, they're constantly putting out fires. They're developing younger leaders, and, overall, and they're overseeing the overall vision and direction of the church, you know? So you can't expect them, to, you, you know, to give you in-depth biblical preaching Sunday after Sunday. They only have time to strip mine the Bible to find relevant life tips that can be applied. And, and you shouldn't complain about that. No, you shouldn't complain about that at all. Because, you know, if you were being mature, 
then you'd understand that uh, you know the, your job is to feed yourself. You don't, don't don't go to church expecting to be fed. What kind of selfish ignoramus are you? I mean, everybody knows that uh, we live in the age of you know the internet. So don't go to church, especially a seeker-driven mega church, and expect the pastor to, you know to you know preach the word. Yeah, what's the problem with this? What's the uh, problem with this? Well, the problem with this is that Scripture makes it clear what the duties and obligation of the pastoral office are. Let me read to you a couple of those passages, and you'll see what I'm talking about. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4 through 4 says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, for shame, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Yeah, that's Peter who wrote that. And it's, well, it's not a, an accident that he wrote that regarding the job of the pastor to shepherd the flock that is among them, which also requires them to be fed. Because remember, uh, Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times times. And when he was restored, here's what Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep sheep. Acts chapter 20 verses 28 through 31 says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to withdraw away the disciples after themselves. Uh huh. Now, this, the scripture is clear on this. The job of a pastor is to feed Christ's sheep. And if a pastor is too busy with, um, let me see, what was the list here again? Um, managing staff, building systems to meet needs, putting out fires, developing leaders, and overseeing the overall vision and direction of the church. If they're too busy doing that to actually do what God's word commands them to do, which, by the way, nowhere in Scripture will you find that pastors are told to manage staff, build systems, put out fires, develop leaders while overseeing the uh, overall vision and direction of the church. Now, developing leaders, actually, I think there's something to be said about developing men so that they can become pastors. There is something about that in Scripture. But the rest of the stuff, no, nah, that's not part of the pastoral office. So if they're too busy doing all of that stuff to, you know, to actually study God's Word, come to uh, the church service prepared to preach the word and rightly handle it and feed Christ's sheep with Christ's word on Sunday. If their pastor's too busy with all that other stuff, he's not a pastor um, and he's shirking his responsibility. So if you're not being fed in a church like that, you had better leave 
because that pastor's not doing his job. And worse, he's basically saying you're the problem, not him. When in reality, Scripture's clear, he's the problem, not you. You you get what I'm saying. So next one, it's getting too big. Um, Now, I can appreciate the sense of loss that accompanies growth. Uh, Aaron Loy writes, he says, when we first began our church, it was little more than a small band of brothers and sisters meeting together in a living room. It feels very different now that we are a church of a few hundred people spread across multiple services. There are moments when I miss the intimacy and simplicity of those early days, but remaining small is a sad and unbiblical goal. Not necessarily, by the way. When churches are faithful to the Great Commission, lives will be changed, people will be added to their number. It may not happen rapidly, but growth is sometimes inevitable for faithful churches. Given a long enough timeline, if you have a problem with big churches, you really wouldn't have liked the first church, and you definitely won't like heaven. Which is kind of lame, because yes, it's true that uh, you know on the day of Pentecost, there was more than 3,000 people who were brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But God busted that church up with persecution, and churches uh, throughout history of the church have for the most part remained small. And here's the reason why, is because the job of a pastor is to shepherd Christ's sheep. And it becomes physically impossible for one man to actually effectively shepherd uh, Christ's sheep once a congregation gets above about 150. At that point, you have two options, two options biblically. Really? Yeah, that's right. Here's option number one. You get another pastor. So you have two pastors who are sharing the load. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you can even call a third pastor. And the idea then is, is that, that that way that everybody in the church is effectively being shepherded and people are not falling through the cracks. It's a perfectly legit way of doing things. And many congregations that are large in size, above 150, employ more than one pastor in order to share the load so that the shepherding can be done effectively. However, there is another option. Option number two is to split the church into two churches. Mm-hmm. Just be, you know, you, just to say that a church that's faithful to the Great Commission will inevitably grow, and therefore everybody just needs to get over it. Uh, that's not true. In fact, if a pastor's really about serving Christ's sheep and is concerned about doing that with excellence. Yeah, again, think what I'm thinking here. Um, then he's not the draw. Christ is, right? So the option number two in a, in a situation like this is to break a church into two congregations and call a second pastor to pastor the other congregation. This is a completely legit way to do this. And historically, this has been one of the ways in which uh, churches have multiplied not you know, not saying we're going to have a cult of personality and everyone needs to you know come to this big church that continues to grow and grow and grow and grow and get grows to the point where you never know the pastor that it's impossible for him to physically actually know who you are um instead you know the idea you bust the church up and you call you call a second pastor now you have two growing thriving congregations. And when they, you know, it's kind of like how a beehive works, the the, the perfectly legit thing to do. And so um, if you are attending a church that is too big 
for the way in which it's being pastored so that you do not know your pastor. He doesn't know you. You're not receiving pastoral care. You're just one, you know, one person in a sea of humanity. That may be a good reason to leave because at that point, you're not really actually being shepherded. Okay. And being, and, and having a shepherd is more than just being taught a sermon. Yeah, it's actually the uh, the intimacy and one-on-one contact that goes with the pastoral office is a vital component of the office itself. Okay, next one. I don't agree with everything that's being preached. You know what? Neither do I, and I'm and I'm the pastor. As much as I fully reserve the right to disagree with myself, and now every and every now and then I do exactly that. Why? Because I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm asking questions, and my hope is that. Uh, that that those I pastor are doing likewise. If you insist that your pastor agree with you on every little thing under the sun, you are going to either hop from church to church for the rest of your life in perpetual disappointment, or you will eventually give up and drop out altogether. Now, I'd like to point out the obvious flaw here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, listen, um, nowhere in Scripture does it say that a pastor must teach everything that agrees with you. Mm-mm. The job of a pastor is to preach what's in accord with sound doctrine, and he should not be a pastor unless he studied and showed himself approved, and one who is right capable of rightly handling God's word. So this isn't a matter of, you know, a pastor disagrees with something I believe. No, 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 no. The standard is sound doctrine in what Scripture believes, and if your pastor's preaching that which is contrary to sound doctrine— you may not want to hang out there, and if he doesn't think sound doctrine is an important thing, well, he's run afoul with what God's Word says. Uh, Titus chapter 1, I'll start at verse 5. This is what it says. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, listen to the um, qualifications before a person can be a pastor. Must be above reproach, husband of one wife, children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Yeah, that's right. So before a man ever goes into the pastoral office, he must already be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Pastors are not guys who are supposed to kind of figure it out as they go. Uh Uh-uh, no. Um, If you're still figuring out what sound doctrine is, you shouldn't be a pastor. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. Um, once you start understanding what sound doctrine is and you're able to know what it is and to rebuke those who contradict it, now you're ready to be a pastor. And uh, and so the idea here is this, is the standard isn't what somebody's opinion is theologically. The standard is what Scripture says. The standard is sound doctrine. And uh, a pastor should not be somebody who's still trying to figure out what that is. He needs to have studied and showed himself approved and already know what that is. So you can kind of see what's going wrong here in this um, article. Again, it's just purpose-driven propaganda, and the arguments are lame, and the arguments are actually very easy to refute from Scripture. 
if you know what the Bible says regarding the pastoral office. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. A fantastic sermon. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two, get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. ThinkGeek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Now, contrast what you just heard. Okay? And the idea is the inebriating effects of false doctrine. Compare it to the sober, sober minded sound doctrine that you are about to hear in this excellent sermon. But let's um, do this right. Here we go. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Grace Baptist Church in Port Aaron on the Isle of Man. 
Daniel Needs Presiding. The name of the sermon is Be Prepared for Christ's Return. Be Prepared for Christ's Return, the parable of the two slaves and the parable of the talents. Now, biblical interpretation and sound hermeneutics can be a dicey business. But here's the idea. You use scripture to interpret scripture and you're going to be okay. Huh? This is what's called uh, biblical matrixing. You're gonna, you pull upon the matrix of the whole Bible's teaching in order to pull in those passages that apply soundly, correctly, in order to shed light on what's going on in this text. And Daniel just does a fantastic job of this. And he rightly divides law and gospel, preaches sin and grace and repentance and the forgiveness of sins in these parables that talk about Jesus' imminent return. It's... Again, it's comforting and it's brilliantly done. I think you're going to enjoy it. But pay attention to the fact how soberly and soundly he delivers this great, solid doctrine to us. The contrast between what you're going to hear and what you have heard so far is so stark that you begin, just by the virtue of that, to see the importance of sound doctrine and what it really does. All right, let me go ahead and kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Daniel Needs, and be prepared for Christ's return. Here we go. Please open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. You can find this on page 875 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, page 875. Our focus tonight is on two parables from the Olivet Discourse. Uh, this is Jesus' private teaching to his disciples on the Mount of Olives shortly before his crucifixion. And our theme tonight is being prepared for Christ's return. Jesus speaks privately to his disciples, verse 42. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Let's just stop there. Servant is a rather sanitized translation of the Greek word, and it diminishes the force of Jesus' teaching, and it obscures its sense just a little. A more accurate translation is slave. So let's continue reading with that substitution. Verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise slave, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that slave whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and to drink and eat with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus next tells the parable of the ten virgins. We'll skip over this to his third parable, beginning at chapter 25, verse 14. 
chapter 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own slaves and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents. Again, let's just pause and note that the word talent in this parable does not mean a skill or ability, but it's a measure of money. And the value of a talent varied quite a lot throughout history, but it was always a a reasonably large sum. Verse 15. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, you good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable slave into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jump over the sheep and the goats passage now to chapter 26, verse 1. Chapter 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. May the Lord grant that we receive his holy word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge our utter dependence upon your Holy Spirit 
to grant us a true and saving understanding of your most precious and holy word, which you have graciously given to your church, that we might be made wise to the knowledge of salvation through faith in your beloved son, Jesus Christ, and also thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we humbly beg you now to be present and working by your same Holy Spirit through the proclamation of this, your word. May he grant us receptive hearts, ready minds, and open ears to hear what you would say to us tonight. May he also convict us of our sins, comfort us with the gospel, and open our eyes to see the glory and majesty of your own dear son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus is going away. He speaks to his disciples privately, telling them, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. King Jesus, the glorious and majestic Son of God, has made himself of no reputation, and inseparably taken to himself a human nature. And this Son of Man from heaven now humbles himself to complete on our behalf and in our place his perfect, sinless obedience to his Father's will. After two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This priest and good shepherd shall soon be obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And in the offering of his own life as a propitiatory sacrifice for his precious chosen sheep, he shall for a brief time leave bereft these sheep, these disciples to whom he now speaks. After two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Yet Jesus is the good shepherd. And having thus far preserved his disciples in the name and authority of his father, he shall now lose none of them, not even in his absence, except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so God, the living word, speaks the life-giving word of God. And as the disciples of this prophet keep and guard his word, the word shall surely guard and keep them though they be assailed by the gates of Hades itself. The disciples' abject desolation at the death of their Lord is to be brief. They shall soon know the joy of his resurrection morn. Yet the master is mindful of a much longer soon-coming absence. For forty short days after his rising from the dead, Jesus will be taken bodily into heaven. There he shall sit down at the right hand of God in his triumph. There he shall send his disciples a helper from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. And this spirit of truth shall guide them into all truth. Thus, though in our text Jesus now speaks privately only to his disciples, 
he utters words that shall guard and sustain all his sheep until his eventual glorious return to judge the living and the dead. True words that the Holy Spirit of truth shall cause Matthew the evangelist to write down in his gospel, even for our own benefit. And that is how we have our text tonight. In chapters 24 and 25, Matthew has recorded for, for us some of the very last teachings of Jesus. As is fitting for his last teachings, Jesus speaks of last things, things that will occur before he returns again at the end of the age. The soon-departing king leaves his disciples with words of caution, words of warning, words that will comfort some and terrify others. You may wish to open your Bibles again and follow along as we take our tour through the text. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, page 875 in the Church Bibles. In verse 42, Jesus exhorts his disciples to watch, because you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. In verse 43, he restates the point using the metaphor of the master of a house watching for a thief in the night. In verse 44, he states the matter plainly. You also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Thus Jesus speaks urgently of his coming return. He commands his disciples to be watching, to be ever ready, for he will come at an unexpected hour. Jesus anticipates the obvious question. What does it mean to watch and to be ready? He narrates a sequence of three closely related parables to explain in the first, which we have in chapter 24, verses 45 through 51, a faithful and wise slave is contrasted with one who is evil. In each case, the slave is made a ruler over the household in his master's absence. Verse 45 states the reason for the appointment, to give them food in due season. This master loves his household and wishes them to be cared for and fed while he is away. Each slave behaves according to his own character, according to what he is. The faithful and wise slave carries out his master's wishes, and this obedience illustrates the outward evidence of his readiness for his master's return. The master shall bless this slave. The evil slave takes advantage of his master's delay, neglecting his duty and beginning to abuse his position of authority. <coughs> He beats his fellow slaves and wastes his master's goods, eating and drinking with drunkards. This evil slave is in no way ready for the return of his master. Jesus warns that this master will come unexpectedly and will punish that evil slave severely. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sense of the parable is straightforward enough, though it warrants closer scrutiny. Notice that the wise slave is described as faithful. In the underlying Greek, as in English, this word can indicate either that the person is reliable and trustworthy, 
or that he is full of faith, that is, that he has a confident trust in another. The intended sense must be determined from the context of the passage, and here we clearly see that Jesus wishes us to understand that the wise slave is trustworthy and can be depended upon to carry out his master's orders. Nevertheless, the latent ambiguity of the word faithful causes us to wonder why the slave can be trusted to do his master's will. Could it be that the slave loves his master, knowing him to be good and kind? We have more than a hint of this because we've already seen that the master wants his household to be well fed while he's away. But also we see in verse 46 that the faithful slave is rewarded upon his master's return. Blessed is that slave, Jesus says. Remember, though, the master owes nothing to his slave in return for his service. A slave is a slave, after all, owned by his master and obligated to do his will. In chapter 17, verse 7 of his gospel, Luke documents Jesus making exactly this point to his apostles. Jesus says, And which of you, having a slave ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that slave because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, We are unprofitable slaves. We have done what was our duty to do. Jesus asserts here that it is proper even for the apostles, when they have done all that was commanded of them, to regard themselves no more highly than as unprofitable slaves. The apostles are not to think that God owes them anything for their service, for they are owned by him, as is all his creation. And as those for whom Jesus shall soon die and purchase with his own precious blood, the apostles shall especially be Christ's slaves, as are all for those whom Christ died. The master's blessing upon the faithful and wise slave is thus not at all a matter of paying the slave his due wages, for none are owed but of the master's bestowing unmerited favour. Obedience is merely the slave's duty. The reward is purely from grace. We thus see the master to be gracious and kind in his blessing of the slave. We infer that the faithful and wise slave is trustworthy because he knows and trusts in his master's good grace. The slave's actions flow from his faith, and his faith is rewarded. The evil slave, however, despises his master and cares nothing for his wishes. In his disdain, he acts according to his lack of faith, and thereby earns his due reward. Since Jesus is talking privately to his disciples, the most immediate application of this parable is to them. 
Jesus is the master who is going away. And a little later in his gospel, Matthew records the Great Commission, whereby Jesus grants the disciples stewardship over his household, entrusting to them the riches of his spiritual kingdom so that they may feed and care for his church. This is how Jesus commissions his disciples. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Though Jesus is leaving, he will not leave his disciples alone. He promises to be with them always. Jesus, the word of God, shall abide in them, even as they abide in his word. Jesus is present through the very kingdom riches that he entrusts to them for the care and feeding of his household. He is present in the proclamation of his holy word. He is present in baptism. He is present in his holy supper. Observe, too, that this wonderful promise of Christ's presence is to the end of the age. What is applicable to the disciples is therefore applicable to their successors, to all those commissioned by Christ to shepherd his church by preaching his word, administering baptism and presiding over the Lord's Supper. If the grace shown to the faithful slave is a strong encouragement to Christ's faithful ministers, the fate of the evil slave, cut in two and appointed his portion with the hypocrites, is a stern warning to the many false teachers who prey upon their flocks. They dare to scratch itching ears. They extract tithes under duress. They devour widows' houses. And driven by their unbridled lust for power and their love of money, They take the word of God intended for the feeding of the flock and peddle it for selfish gain. Upon his unexpected return, the master shall punish them severely according to their works. (coughs) Those called to the office of the ministry of the word carry a special responsibility to administer the riches of the kingdom. Let not many of you become teachers, says James the Apostle knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Yet the reception of these gifts of word, baptism, and supper is withheld from none who names the name of Christ. Every believer, then, has been entrusted with these great life-sustaining riches of the Master's kingdom. The parable of the two slaves thus warns of the terror of the Lord's severity, And it comforts with his abounding grace. He punishes those who hate him, yet richly rewards those who trust in his loving kindness, even though they be ever so undeserving. Through this parable, then, Jesus exhorts us to know him through his word, baptism and supper, and thereby also to trust him. And as a consequence of this trust, we are to treat our fellow slaves well, according to the calling with which we have been called, 
by our gracious Lord and Master. Now we have insufficient time tonight to examine the next parable. I'm guessing you don't want to stay till about half past eight. So we'll skip over the parable of the ten virgins. But let's simply note the primary lesson that Jesus wishes it to teach. Chapter 25, verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Our final parable enlarges upon what it means to be watching and ready for the Lord's return. It also adds definition to the picture already painted of the coming judgment. The repetition across the three parables underscores the urgency and the importance of Jesus' message. And taken together, they prepare our understanding for his subsequent teaching on the sheep and the goats. But maybe that will have to wait for a next time. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 then. A man is traveling to a far country. Again, we have a representation of Jesus. The distance to be traveled suggests that this man may be away for a long time. Another illustration of Jesus' delayed return. The man calls his slaves to himself and delivers his goods into their care. As with the first parable, in view of the fact that Jesus is speaking privately to his disciples and that Matthew shortly after records the Great Commission, it is reasonable for us to understand that this man's goods represent the riches of his heavenly kingdom. What are these riches, specifically signified by the talents? We cast our minds back a few chapters in Matthew, back to chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. And there Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We understand that Jesus speaks here of himself leaving his home in glory and laying down everything that he has, even his own life, to purchase for himself a special treasure, which is his chosen bride, the church. Jesus washes away every stain of her sin with his precious blood and clothes her nakedness with the royal robes of his own perfect righteousness. The riches of the heavenly kingdom that the Lord entrusts to his stewards then are the saints of his church. Fallen sinners declared righteous, washed and redeemed by the finished work of Christ himself. We see that the riches of this parable are identical to the household entrusted to the care of the slaves in the first. The two parables treat the same subject. So back to Matthew chapter 25, verse 15. To one slave the man gives five talents, to another two, and to another one. We should not despise the small amount. Even one talent is a large sum of money. 
we thus learn that the riches of the kingdom of heaven are entrusted in varying degrees to Christ's own slaves. The distribution is to each according to his own ability. All our abilities, whether natural or spiritual, are themselves gifts of God. And so, as each one of us has been gifted by him with our varying aptitudes, Christ, in his perfect wisdom, also entrusts to our care an appropriate measure of the riches of his kingdom. Again, the immediate application is to the disciples and their successors. The apostles were exceedingly gifted by God and accordingly entrusted directly by Christ to lay the very foundations of the church, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Elders, likewise, are called by Christ and given the lesser, though still very heavy, responsibility of overseeing their congregations. In like manner, Christian husbands are charged with the love and tender care of their wives. Fathers with bringing up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord. Mothers with the care and nurturing of children. Older women with the admonishing of the younger. Children with honouring their parents. To each and every one, according to his or her ability, Jesus gives a vocation to love and serve our neighbours as ourselves. And what a privilege, what an honour it is to be entrusted by Christ to carry out his work, to be his ministers to our neighbour in need. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for these good works, those everyday, commonplace things commanded in his word, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We do not do these good works to earn or keep God's favour, but as a fruit of faith, a fruit of our confident joy that Jesus, our Lord, has already won for us his Father's favour at unfathomable cost to himself, freely bestowing it upon you who believe. Through Christ's finished work for you, having been declared righteous in God's sight by grace through faith, you have been set free from the impossible demands of the law as a way to earn or maintain right standing before God. This is what Paul means when he writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Back to our parable, verse 15. Having distributed his money, the man goes on his journey. The slave who had been given five measures of money immediately sets to work and trades with it. He makes another five. The one who had been given two likewise gains two more. With their diligence, these slaves evidence their faithful love and the high regard that they hold for their master. Since this parable and the first both deal with the same subject matter, and given that in both cases the slaves represent those entrusted with overseeing the church, we readily understand the act of trading here to be analogous to the care and feeding of the household in the first parable. Thus, in this parable, to trade primarily means to care for the saints through the ministry of the word, preaching, baptism, communion. As trading with money leads to financial profit, 
So the faithful proclamation of God's holy word leads to spiritual increase. Verse 18. Two slaves faithfully trade. But the slave who has received only one talent digs a hole in the ground and hides his Lord's money. This is how he spurns the gift entrusted to him by his Lord. He did not desire it. He does not want it. Why trouble himself with his master's business when he can please himself in idleness? Best to put the money safely out of sight and out of mind. The slave's faithlessness could have been worse. He might have wasted his Lord's money, even as the evil slave of the first parable had wasted his master's possessions. And yet, as we shall see, his disrespect for his Lord will nevertheless be judged severely. This slave's behavior represents especially those entrusted with the care of Christ's flock who do not care to apply themselves to their calling. They do not study to show themselves approved before God. Rather, they are workers who ought to be ashamed since they are unable rightly to divide the word of truth, law, and gospel. Far too many such wicked slaves plague our churches, thinking highly of themselves and teaching doctrines, dreams, and visions of their own imagining, rather than proclaiming the perfect law of God. And the glorious gospel of Christ crucified from sinners and raised from the dead. It will give you four steps to a debt-free life, five tips for healthier relationships, and six ways to raise obedient children. But they rob you of the life-giving word of Christ. They too shall be rewarded according to their work. Verse 19. After a long time. And notice how plainly Jesus now speaks of his delayed return. The Lord comes to settle accounts with his slaves. He wishes to receive the increase that is his rightful due. As with the first parable of the two slaves, the master owes the slaves nothing. They owe him everything. They are his possession. They have been trading with his goods. They merit no reward. They have merely done their duty. All the increase rightfully belongs to their Lord. He who had received five talents now presents ten. Lord, he says, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. The slave is not boasting for he was merely doing his duty with his master's goods. Rather, he speaks as if surprised by the increase. Neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. The Lord commends the slave, and though he owes the slave nothing, blesses him, saying, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The parable does not detail the nature of the heavenly rewards awaiting the faithful. It's sufficient to note that the reward is greatly increased responsibility 
and lavish joy in Christ our Lord. The one who received two talents similarly brings his increase to his Lord. And though entrusted with a lesser amount, it too has doubled. And though the merit is also not his, he is identically blessed from the extravagant grace of his Lord. Finally, the one who had received one talent is summoned. He presents his contemptible excuse. Verse 24. Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. The slave is disingenuous. If he finds his Lord to be a hard man, it is because he has no regard for his master's beneficent grace, but instead contemptuously scorns the gift his master has entrusted to him. Has this slave not just seen his Lord shower undeserved rewards upon his fellows? Yet he shows that he has no trust in his Lord's goodness and grace. What he lacks is faith. And even now, this wicked, faithless slave does not seek his Lord's mercy, but openly displays his hatred for him by speaking provocative words. He has no respect for his master, no understanding that he is owned by this Lord and owes him a duty of faithful service. He has no fear of this supposedly hard Lord's wrath, but disparages him to his face. Has this Lord not sown? Has this Lord not scattered seed? Has this Lord not purchased this worthless slave? Has he not fitted him for service and given him money with which to trade? And had the slave really been afraid? Surely then he would have been diligent to conduct his Lord's business. The entire parable shows the absurdity of the slave's protestations. Nevertheless, the Lord answers the slave according to his own words. For the slave has condemned himself. Verse 26. You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back mine own with interest. If the circumstances had really been as the slave describes, the very least he ought to have done is to have deposited the money to earn interest. This would have entailed minimal effort or risk, and yet his contempt for his master was such that he was unwilling to do even this small thing. And so the slave's actions show the falsity of his words, and the Lord's judgment is just. This slave is both wicked and lazy. The Lord begins to pronounce sentence, verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. 
but from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. As with this wicked slave who despised his Lord and spurned his gift, so too with those who hold the coming Lord Jesus in contempt and spurn the precious gift of his gospel. The gift they reject shall be taken from them, and instead grace shall abound to those who through their confidence in the grace and mercy of Christ fear, love, and trust in him above all things. The Lord finishes declaring sentence. Cast the unprofitable slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The final damning verdict on this man is that he is an unprofitable slave. The Lord's words... In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth are exactly those with which Jesus finishes the first parable. (coughs) They demonstrate the severity of the sentence. This wicked, lazy, unprofitable slave, though he neither tormented his fellows nor consumed his Lord's money, suffers the same fate as the evil slave of the first parable who did. And even as that fearful, fatal phrase, unprofitable slave, rings in our ears, our minds go back to the only other occurrence of that phrase in the New Testament, the words of Jesus to his apostles, recorded by Luke. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable slaves. We have done what was our duty to do. And as we hear these words of Christ, our consciences are pierced by the realisation that we are less than unprofitable slaves. For Jesus, the King of all creation, is our Lord and owner. We are his slaves, and we have not done all those things that he has commanded us. We have not done what was our duty to do. We have turned away from opportunity after opportunity to love our neighbour as ourselves. We have often shunned the vocations entrusted to us, excusing ourselves because we are tired, because we deserve a rest, because we have other things we wish to do. Because we believe we have loved enough. And besides, our efforts aren't even appreciated, are they? How little we would do if we did not have at least the gratitude of men, if not their praise. Does this not betray the selfish motivation of our wicked, sinful hearts? And even in these times when we have performed our duty... So often our hearts have not been in it. We did it begrudgingly, not as to the Lord. And we resented the imposition of our neighbour's need. Have we not also so often failed when the Lord has given us occasion to share the joyful news of sins forgiven through Jesus Christ? 
have we too not buried in a dirty hole the precious, life-giving, sustaining gift of the gospel? And we husbands have failed always to love our wives as Christ has loved the church, laying down his life for her. You fathers have not always been faithful to bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. You wives have not always been godly in your conduct towards your husbands. We children have not always honoured our parents. All these, our sins of omission, are enough thoroughly to damn us to an eternal hell. Our faults are far more numerous and far more grave than those of the wicked, lazy servant entrusted with his one silver talent. If he is not spared, how shall our coming judge spare us for the deliberate neglect of our duties? And still worse, as we contemplate our thoughts, we realise the mountain of our sins of commission. Like the evil slave of the first parable, have you too not abused your fellow slaves? Have you not hurt them with your words, with your gossip, with your failing to believe the best of them? And as with that slave, have you not despised and failed to esteem in thought, word and deed those in authority over you, your parents, your employers, your pastors? And as that slave ate and drank the provisions intended for his master's household, Have you not coveted what was not yours, acting craftily to your neighbour's disadvantage? These are the sins for which Christ died, you who trust in him. After two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, says Jesus to his disciples. As we are crushed, by the accusations of God's holy law, as we despair of our own wickedness, let us not then be like the faithless slaves of our parables, eternally consigned to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. They believed their master to be harsh, notwithstanding his lavish grace. Yet you, You know your Lord and Master to be gracious and merciful, for you have been given the riches of his kingdom, even the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is that good news to you who believe. Christ's life of perfect obedience put to your account His death in your place, bearing your punishments and washing away the guilt of all your sins. His resurrection for your justification. And as we daily repent of our sin and believe this good news, the old nature is put to death and the new rises to life in Christ we unexpectedly find the love of God to have been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we are surprised as this love overflows in good works for our neighbour. Jesus takes you, his unprofitable slaves, and fits you 
for his profitable service. Yet the exceeding grace of God abounds still further in his kindness towards you in Jesus Christ. For even as the master in our parables rewarded his faithful slaves, not for their merit, but from his abundant grace, God is pleased to accept and reward your good works, blessing them and causing you to bear fruit to the increase of his glory. Though all your good works be stained through with sin in this life, though they be accompanied with ever so many weaknesses and imperfections, the Father nevertheless looks upon them in his Son and is pleased to accept and reward for Christ's sake that which you do from faith. May the Lord grant through the gospel, through Christ for you and in you, that you be found faithful in his service. May he cause you to hear on that final day the commendation of your Lord and to enter into his heavenly joy. And even in this, rest secure in the sure and certain promise of your good, kind, gracious and loving God. For it is he who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Go now in the peace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, all you who are trusting in him. Amen. Amen. Mm. Mm. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.